Erie, Indiana. Day 45. I knew my hometown was going to be different from where I grew up in New Jersey. But this is ridiculous. Nobody believes me. But Erie is the center of weirdness for the entire planet. Item. A guy that looks suspiciously like Elvis lives on my paper route. Thank you, little paper boy. Item. Bigfoot eats out of my trash. Item. A bizarre housewife cult in town has been sealing up their kids in giant rubber kitchen ore so they don't age. And now, just when I thought things couldn't get any worse, I discovered that in Erie, even man's best friend is up to no good. When I try to tell this to my family, they just think I'm weird. Better weird than dead. Oh! To the Haunted Davenport podcast. We cover retro horror and sci-fi television. My name is Allison and with me are my regular co-hosts Val. Hello. Andy. Hello. And Drew. Hi. That was awesome. If, <laughs> if this is your first first time listening to the show, we are all related in one way or another. Um, it's explained in later episodes, and it's not that important. So. Earlier episodes. <laughs> or, yeah, sorry, earlier episodes. But It'll probably be explained in later episodes as well. You yeah. can it's, a, it's a family <laughs> show here at the Haunted Davenport. And for tonight's episode, or well, whenever you're listening to this, it, we are going to cover the awesome early 90s television show Eerie Indiana which was sci-fi and light horror for kids and it ran from 1991 to 1992 just for one short awesome season on NBC and then later was in syndication on Disney starting in 1993. Um, You may remember this if you were a kid growing up in the 90s it's people have called this X-Files for kids but this predates X-Files and it definitely has ties to Kolchak because you get at the beginning of just about every episode you get narration from the main character named Marshall and he is recording his report on the latest episode of weirdness because Erie Indiana as it happens is the center of weirdness for the entire universe yeah that's a lot of weirdness we're excited because this is the start of our summer of 90s nostalgia especially 90s childhood nostalgia. So fair warning, we're going to be in the 90s world for the rest of the summer, which is probably a plus for some people and a minus for others. But hopefully you'll stick with us because it's going to be fun. And I don't know about you guys, but I could really use a little bit of lighthearted, lighthearted fun and a little bit of weirdness to distract from the terribleness that is going on in the outside world. A whole lot of weirdness. Honestly, the 90s was a time of such unprecedented economic prosperity. I think we could all reflect back on that fondly. There's some kookiness in the 90s, that's for sure. (laughs) It was a kooky decade. 
it seems like there was a lot of a lot of creativity happening though which is great and uh, one of the things that people who watch the show uh, will notice if they are horror fans or sci-fi fans or fans of just a lot of fun 80s stuff is there's a heavy influence from Joe director Joe Dante in this he was not the creator of the series the series was created mm-hmm. by Jose Rivera and Carl Schaefer they were longtime veterans of writing for sitcoms, and they've produced several things and written for tons of film and movies. But they created the series, and then Joe Dante directed the very first episode and a few others, and then stayed on as a creative consultant for the show. And it definitely has his his touch on it. Anyone who's a fan of the Burbs, if you haven't seen this show, watch this show. You're going to love it. And with that, we're going to get into full spoilers for pretty much the entire series, which is only 19 episodes long and currently available on Amazon Prime to watch with a Prime subscription. And I think it's also available to stream and rent a few other places. If you're a physical media junkie like I kind of am, you may want to scour eBay or Amazon for the DVD set of this. Um, Prices vary. It can be pretty steep. Um, It's out of print, so it'll range anywhere from like 40 to a hundred bucks for a complete set. But if you're a fan and you're into having physical media, I recommend it. We picked up the series on DVD. I watched eBay like a hawk until I found a good deal and got a mint condition set. So yay me. Um, (laughs) But yeah, you never know when that streaming stuff is going to disappear. Exactly. That's the thing. Streaming is awesome, but we don't have control over what the streaming companies decide to let us watch. So if something's important to you and it's a lesser known show like this, then definitely become a collector. Mm-hmm. Keep physical media alive. So we're going to, we're going to, um, I think throughout we will probably just do some general discussion of the series and we'll talk about more episodes, but we're going to cover in depth four episodes for this series. We're going to cover the very first episode, which was Foreverware. We're also going to talk about an episode called The Dead Letter. We're going to talk about an episode called Mr. Cheney and an episode called Zombies and PJs. And uh, to start it off, yeah, it's all awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, the neighbors are shooting off illegal fireworks. Go America. <laughs> uh, Forever Wear is the first one we're going to talk about. I don't think it gets picked up on the mic. Hopefully not. <laughs> it's just there to annoy me um, and worry our neighbor's dogs. We, uh, yeah, Forever Wear was originally on on NBC in September of 1991, and it's basically kind of riffing on the 60s television suburban lifestyle. Um, there's, there's a quote, where's Donna Reed when you need her? And um, the main character, Marshall Teller, who moved to Erie, Indiana with his family, is worried because his mother, Marilyn Teller, uh, she gets in with a Tupperware cult, basically. And real, <laughs> well, it's the Tupperware yeah, Stepford Wives. Yeah, basically. Tupperware Stepford Wives of Erie, Indiana. And they, she's selling this product called Foreverware. And apparently, Foreverware can keep anything fresh forever. So let's get into it, guys. Let's talk about this episode. Oh, by the way, this one was directed by Joe Dante, like I said before. Um, and the main characters are Marshall Teller and his friend and kind of sidekick throughout the series, Simon Holmes. Marshall Teller's played by Omri Katz. Simon Holmes is played by 
Justin Shankaro. Hmm. I'd also like to mention that this is one of the episodes that's also written by the show creators, um, Jose Rivera and Carl Schaefer. So this this is really like a, a conjunction of the spheres kind of episode. It's It's got everything going for it. And it's great. It's, it really you know, is. Not all shows start off strong. This one starts off banging. You watch this and you're like, it could be almost its own little kid-level conspiracy theory movie, you know? It's mm-hmm. it's really well shot. They also shot the entire series on film instead of video like they used to do back in the day for TV. So it looks great. Um, but yeah, so do you guys, do you want to share your thoughts about, about the Foreverware episode? So I was like, super triggered by the contents of the teller's family refrigerator. Um, <laughs> I I didn't bring this up in our last episode when we were talking about Cowboy Bebop and we brought up Toys in the Attic, but fridge horror is one of my sensitive spots. Nice. Um, I'm a vegetarian, so I have a lot of vegetables in my refrigerator often, and they are all in various um, stages of decay and also sentience. And <laughs> Some foreverware. I yeah like. Do you ever uh, worry that you op- you're gonna open the door and you're gonna hear Zool? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> like as a child, like the concept of using Tupperware just seems like why would anyone get so into that? But if you're an adult who has just thrown away like literal hundreds of dollars of food over the course of your lifespan, you're like foreverware seems like th- it's not that expensive and. Honestly, what a sound investment. What a good right. use of my time and resources. Um, I'm I'm on I'm hard on Team Foreverware. I did a 180 on that. <laughs> I I don't know. You were afraid um, as a child. Now you're sold. I didn't pay for food as a child, and I think that's the main difference. <laughs> right. I don't know. The, the dad does mention that they that there is a payment plan for the Foreverware, so I'm not sure if it's as, as cheap as maybe one might assume. Yeah, his um, ears prick up when he hears installments. He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what now? I should mention, too, that the family, the Teller family, to round the rest of them out, uh, because they're major characters and recurring throughout the series. We have Marilyn Teller, who's played by uh, Mary Margaret Humes. Um, we have Edgar Teller, played by, I can't read my handwriting. Francis. Francis, is it, is it Gwynman? Sorry guys, I'm gonna have to look that back. I'm gonna have to look that up again. And then Cindy Teller, who's played by Julie Condra, and Julie Condra was on another show around the same er- uh, era as uh, it was called The Wonder Years. Some of you might have seen that one. Oh, who is she in The Wonder Years? She plays. She's in a few episodes. She plays. Um, she plays sort of the hot girl that tries to lure Kevin away from Winnie for a while when Kevin and Winnie are dating. Oh and I remember- my goodness. As a junior, because when that show was on, and also when this show was on, I was a junior high kid, so I was the age of these kids, kind of slightly younger, because I was a sixth grader in 1991. But I remember watching The Wonder Years and thinking, these beautiful girls were both interested in Fred Savage. Like, no no offense, Fred Savage. He was an adorable kid, but, like, really? Like, these were gorgeous. <laughs> and, and Julie Condra is, like, she's got, a, like, a classic kind of, like, like old Hollywood pinup look to her face. Like she's got the perfect eyebrows and like really pretty hair. And she's and I'm just like, I don't see this girl trying to steal Fred Savage away from, uh, I can't remember the name of the actress who plays Winnie Cooper, but she's also super beautiful. Like what? This Danica, is-, is it Danica Miller or Danica? 
it's her first name was Danica and yeah. I was obsessed. I want to say, um, say Geller or something like that, but yeah. Um, although like, I agree, like why go after, um, Fred Savage when, um, Martin Starr is just right there waiting for you to notice him and watch him blossom <laughs> into a handsome, handsome man. My crush on Martin Starr is well documented. So. I, I've never I, seen a photo of him as an adult. I'll have to check that out. He is a smoke show. <laughs> <laughs> that That is awesome. All right, well, okay, we'll get back to you about who plays Edgar Teller because I feel bad about totally botching his name and I made all these notes and I can't read them, so that, that's on me. But anyway, um, we have in this story, we were basically treated to the first investigation by Marshall and Simon. And, you know, it's, it's close to home because Marshall's worried about his mom joining this, this forever wear cult. And so they go and spy on her first meeting with them where they, she gets the sales pitch and she's, she's been wanting to meet some of the other women in the neighborhood. And she's introduced to all these women who are telling her that they've been, a forever wear user since basically the early sixties through the late seventies. And each one of them has a name that's based on like a kind of a homemaker centric corporate brand. We've got a woman whose last name is Crocker. There's a woman whose last name is Stouffer. There's a woman whose last name is Swanson. So there's all these great little digs at, at like the perfect suburban life. Right. Well, and each one of them is like dressed to the like nines of of their era, their era. yeah yeah they so they, like, they, they really nailed every the decade representative like... of the tupperware woman or yeah. the foreverware woman the woman from 1968 looks very much like she was an extra in valley of the dolls <laughs> kind of <laughs> awesome and then um and so the boys end up meeting these seemingly creepy twins that are the sons of uh betty who who is the his, Betty is the main woman, I think. Yeah, she's the main. Tupperware, yeah, the forever wear. Forever wear woman. Her husband created forever wear, and then he passed away, and she's got these twin sons, and their names are Ernest and Bertram, and they. Bert they Those yeah, Bertnerny, and they they slip they slip Marshall a yearbook from was it 1964? Oh, they they slip well, him a note saying to look at yearbook 1964, and so so. Simon gets tasked with going and checking out yearbooks from the school library. And he said that, you know, he was looked at like he was weird for checking these books out. And Marshall tells him better weird than dead. And I thought that's so awesome. <laughs> that could be a good <laughs> slogan. Sometimes you just got to be weird. But yeah, so they, they learn that these two boys have been in the seventh grade for 30 years because their mother owns human sized storage containers and she tucks them in every night and they're preserved. They stay fresh forever. Doesn't tuck them in. She burps them in. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of burping <laughs> of, of the, of the Tupperware in this. Cause I don't know if you guys know Tupperware very well, but their whole thing was they literally had Tupperware parties and like the whole thing was the, the burp to seal freshness where you would push on the middle of the Tupperware container and burp out a little bit of air so it would seal and, you know, it'd get the air out as if <laughs> the air remaining was perfectly <laughs> sanitized yeah. or something. It's, it's, it's not a vacuum in there. <laughs> right. It's, it's not a vacuum seal. 
I am so glad you explained that because I was like, I was like, I get that this is a Tupperware thing, but I don't think I've ever actually seen like Tupperware brand food storage. Like I have Pyrex and that's what I've had my entire adulthood. And so I was like, I get that this is what they're doing. I just don't know enough about food storage history or um, (laughs) like post-World War II and Korean War era um, prosperity to know um, right. what this is a reference. The yeah, original the, Tupperware. The yeah. magic of plastic. The wonderful new invention. Tupperware started in the 50s. Okay. Well, I remember. Now I got to Google Tupperware. It was like the Tupperware party thing was still a thing when I was little in the 80s because I remember it just, I didn't know anyone who ever hosted one or went to one because I was a little kid, but it was definitely like part of the cultural zeitgeist. And then when I was in college, I used to know this guy who was a weed dealer. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> he would show up at a he'd show up at our friend's house with this like ancient set of Tupperware that he would keep his stash in. And it was so cool. We'd all be like, oh my God. And it was in like those like olive greens and orange tones. And I have to tell you, the Tupperware from like the 70s was so much more fun looking and ornate. Kind of like how the Pyrex um Pyrex wear, like if anybody's into cooking or vintage cookware, like has all these fun patterns on it and fun colors and way less boring than a lot of the stuff that's available now. Everybody's into everything being sterile looking and white and just like bring on the colors. But a lot of Tupperware later ended up just kind of being clear with a lid like we see in this episode. Very much what they're spoofing on is what it looks like. But back in the day, it used to... Yeah, multiple colors and designs. Yeah, yeah, and there'd be, like, texture to the lid. Like, it'd, like, be kind of, like, tufted and stuff. It's weird, but, you know, I'm I'm super into decor, so... The the real question is, did it keep his weed fresh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So Tupperware uh, developed in 1942... They were introduced widely to the public in 48. So Tupperware's been around a long time. Yeah. Huh. Oh, by the, by the way, so so the the actor who plays Marshall's dad, Edgar Teller, is is Francis Gwynman. So or Gwyn, sorry, Gwynin. I still can't I still can't talk. It's been a long couple of days, guys. But um, yeah. So Betty, I'm looking up the actress who's who played Betty the main Tupperware salesperson. And she she wasn't Betty Crocker. Someone else's last name was Crocker. But the actress that played her, oh, she died pretty kind of young, actually. Um, The actress that played her has the best facial expressions. Her name is Luann Gideon. And she was in a lot of other television shows she guest starred in Malcolm Malcolm in the Middle thing things like that lots of sitcoms she was on Titus for a minute and Sabrina the Teenage Witch Third Rock from the Sun but she just has one of those faces that's almost cartoon-like and one of the things I appreciate about this episode is how great of a job she embodies this sinister sweet but also sinister 50s housewife and she looks like she could have walked right off the set of, of Tim Burton's Mars Attacks. Like, she's just got this look to she her. She has those pointy housewife boobs, you know, with the bras <laughs> that are, like, incredibly menacing and conical. 
That well, was she's been wearing them since the 50s. That was the first thing I I noticed when I was watching. <laughs> I was like, look at that brassiere, it's incredible. They the, just don't make them like that anymore. But she the forever has, wear keeps everything fresh. Right. Do Forever. Think, do you think yeah. she has to like do like laundry? I mean, uh, you could just you could just well, your clothes will get dirty if you wear them. So right. yeah, they're still gonna get dirty, so you'll still have to wash things. Just maybe yeah, like she's wearing pajamas when she's in in her human sized Tupperware bed. Yeah. Right. And like there's bed linens in there too, so it's like maybe right. just the bed linens never get dirty. Yeah, because dirt's still going to be there. Once they get outside of their Tupperware, the world's still aging around them. I do so have unless some... Unless they, like, put what? all their clothes in the Tupperware with them. Right. Although she probably has Tupperware you know for she her clothes. She probably has, like, we don't Sorry, see... Sorry, Foreverwear. She probably has, like, a closet of Foreverwear wardrobe keepers, you know, to keep the moths off the clothes. That's and keep so the smart. Mm-hmm. I bet. Because she basically has... Some type of forever wear contraption for like every life situation. I really love the pickle picker. Um, yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> I kind of think that's a there's a thing that that looks just like that. I think that like a lot of it. Oh, a lot of it's real, real Tupperware yeah, like, stuff. Yeah, I think they probably just used Tupperware <laughs> to be honest. I'm actually. I'm currently in a Google image search of vintage Tupperware and it is fantastic. So, so, um, Marsh, Marshall and Simon inspect a sandwich that was given to, uh, Marshall's mom in a Tupperware or sorry, foreverware sample container. And she says, you know, if you get hungry, this bologna sandwich is as fresh as the day it was made. I think in she said it was 1974. Yeah. And so the, the kids are looking at it and smelling it. And then, you know, because for scientific research purposes, they consider taking a bite and deciding it's not worth it. And yeah. then they don't they don't close the lid all the way. And they're cautioned that you have to keep the seal tight or aging can be greatly accelerated, as, as we learn from what happens later on. Because um, the twins enlist Marshall and Simon to help them. And so Marshall sneaks into the house at night and unseals the containers in the twins' bedroom so that they can get out of their their human-sized storage. And then they... Their giant foreverware coffins, basically. Yeah, and then they sneak out and they lift the lid on their mom's container so that she ages to the appropriate age she should be as well. And then they can finally be adults. Right. Well, because when he first encounters them... Like, he's afraid of them, but it turns out they're seeking his help because they've been in the seventh grade for 30 years, to which they say is a living hell. Which it, it would be. <laughs> I I don't know. Some people have positive junior high experiences. Eighth grade wasn't so bad. Seventh grade wasn't the worst of those years sixth grade was absolute hell for me but seventh grade wasn't really a cup of, a cup of tea either and I think for a lot of kids it's just those years are rough and awkward and then you're in the pressure cooker that is the school system and a lot of kids get bullied and a lot of kids are terrible or are you looking up some Tupperware yeah I have yeah. been it's the pickle picker yeah actually <laughs> I think now because people are so into vintage and kitsch that there's probably a huge market for vintage Tupperware if you're to you know, search at an antique mall or go on eBay or something. It's just kind of fun. But scour those estates. Anyway, so 
so you know it has a happy ending for everyone except except for, except the for Betty <laughs> except for Betty yeah she right because well, they don't they don't age. kill her or anything no, no she just, she just she ages. Has to be old but yeah. she she finally become they all become the age they actually are I actually don't think she was trying necessarily. I think for her, it was more of a fear of losing the ones you love rather than... Well, I don't think yeah. it's a vanity thing. Like, she's trying to stay young forever. Because they s- actually mention how... Because it's her husband that invented Foreverwear. And the twins mention that she's been putting them in their Tupperware coffins, basically. Foreverwear coffins, sorry. Um, it's just going to happen. Since, since their father died. So she basically freaked out because her husband died didn't want to lose her amazing family situation that she loves so much. And so she just decided to freeze time, mm-hmm. which is understandable. You can have sympathy for her, her decision. Well, and you could look, you could look at that more deeply and think about, I mean, this is on a light level of social commentary because it's directed at kids mostly, but it's an intelligent show. So it's very, I, I as an adult still find it very entertaining and find that it holds up. But I, I think that there's something to be said about when you experience loss and you experience pain, wanting to wrap yourself in a nostalgia blanket. And I, it's, it's something I deal with myself and wanting to make time stand still because the future is uncertain and scary because you've been burned before, you know. And I, I think whenever there's a huge movement towards um, nostalgia, which kind of seems like that's always the case, but you know, in this era, there's a lot of 80s and 90s nostalgia, and it's when times are scary and uncertain, you just want to wrap yourself in that warm blanket, you know? I mean, I, we've been talking about this a lot lately, actually, Drew and I, and I've talked about it with some friends, but, like, when they talk about horror, like, actual, like, just the regular horror genre, there's always kind of a mirror held up between what is happening in society and what kind of themes are showing up in horror because you have, you know, the eighties slasher era where there's a lot of strangers danger and a lot of satanic panic stuff going on. So you get that throughout the late, late seventies through the eighties and you get a lot of, um, you know, what they like to call torture porn in the early two thousands when we were dealing with the Iraq war and stuff that was happening at Guantanamo Bay. And it's just, there's this, these sort of reflections and a lot of zombie movies which continue to happen because there's a lot of commentary about that which we'll get into who are the real zombies right and and then i think i think right now from you know just an outsider standpoint it really looks like the hallmarks of this era of horror are throwback nostalgia movies that have kind of like a spielbergian warmth to them maybe a little bit and then movies um like kind of high art horror that deeps deals with very deep-seated grief you know you get things like hereditary and the lodge and midsummer and the babadook you know like there's just this trend of like people are like expressing this deep pain from their psyche in horror and then also this this idea of needing to retreat and i think if you look at the world today that makes so much sense mm-hmm. but anyway back to erie indiana <laughs> Back to the 90s nostalgia. Right. But also, this show throughout it has a lot to say. And a lot of what it has to say is still relevant. It's still things that we're dealing with and hashing out. It just says them in a lighter way that's a little bit more fun and not going to make you want to, you know, 
be really depressed for a week like a binge of Black Mirror or something, you oh, know? God. And so so if you're feeling bad but you want to explore some of these topics, maybe watch this instead. Did anybody else want to add anything? Oh, I should mention we we get kind of um the the sandwich in the top in the uh, forever where becomes important because it's it ends up being the first piece of eerie Indiana evidence that Marshall keeps in his evidence locker that he and Simon are constantly adding to. And so throughout the show, there's always a piece of evidence from each episode to mark that this really happened and they had this experience of weirdness and they're kind of building, it's their X-Files, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's awesome. Yeah. I, Sorry. I mean, I Oh, okay. Um, I, I was just saying, I think in the X-Files, it was kind of a missed opportunity that Mulder didn't keep a, a special trophy from every case that he worked, you know, from the Monsters of the Week. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right? You know, that'd, that'd be, you know, he'd have like a, um, you know, the Chupacabra's claw or you know, whatever, Bigfoot's sure. foot. <laughs> or the blurry, the blurry photo of Big Blue. <laughs> yep. Oh, Big Blue. Does this look like a tooth to you? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Although I kind of got the feeling that even though this is the first episode, I feel like maybe they've had a couple of these adventures before and might have already kept some evidence. I'm not sure. Maybe. I'm trying to remember yeah. if there yeah, because, was well, because in the show's intro, in he tells you that he already knows Erie, Indiana is a strange place. He's been there. Right. He's been there for a little while and he knows something's up. Um, so it's like so you're kind of catching him partway into his adventuring days. Yeah, what, what do they call that in media res when you start in the middle of the action? Yeah. Um, I think the thing that I like most, like just to wrap up the Foreverware episode, is the this idea that, um, like, because the, they only wrap themselves up in their Foreverware at night. And so this idea that you're only aging at night and that things are only happening to your body, which is also such a trope of like 1950s and 1960s, like women's healthcare. Uh -huh. Regimen, oh, it's right. in, it's like the yeah, it's the cold your... cream theory where it's right. like your, your body, body does a lot of important repair work at night while you're sleeping, but also they're like the the idea that the twins and um the forever wear lady don't age at all during the day and that there's no consequences to their um you know rest of their their 16 hours of waking life that they have is uh, right. I got it. I got a good kick out of that. I'm like, right. if only girl, I'd be so young. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> yeah, it'd be tempting. <laughs> it's like, my, man, if I could just stop the clock for eight hours a day, whoo. And my main takeaway at the end of the episode was I, I, I also liked the the goofy adult twins they got to play, the the grown-up twins. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they seem very friendly and approachable and quirky. I liked them. But and they're the main, kind of like in the background in later episodes here and yeah, there. Yeah, there's a lot of great continuity where you see some of the same characters again and again, and you see Bert and Ernie in the background, and occasionally they'll, they'll have a line. They are played by Dan and Don Stanton. Hmm. Just FYI. Uh, my my thought though was you know if they if they'd been in seventh grade for thirty years they'd obviously never had continuing education so how are they gonna you know adult after that I feel like they probably did their own education at home uh, at least picked a lot know, of stuff if up I was in that situation break. that's what I would have been doing yeah so I feel like they were already you know thirty something year olds but trapped in you know 
13-year-old bodies. Well, and their mother seems heavily reliant on them. So I feel like as far as, as running a household and having skills as far as taking care of yourself and doing laundry and making meals, that they probably learned a lot of those things. Because she even says, you know, well, I need my boys at my side and help me with the refreshments. So I kind of get the feeling that she probably taught them some life skills over the years. Or even if she didn't directly, you can't be in that situation that long and not pick up something here and there, like how yeah, to pay a sure. bill or balance a checkbook or something. I don't know. I've met some 30-year-olds. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But their mother seemed like she was really tightly wound and insistent. So maybe maybe they had to. But anyway, uh, so let's, let's move on. Joe Dante went on to direct a few other episodes. I, none of the other ones we're going to discuss in depth are, are going to be part of our discussion tonight. But there's one I wanted to mention, which is called Hard on a Chain, which um, for horror fans in the audience, they'd be excited to see actress Danielle Harris as one of the lead characters in that episode about a girl who has a heart condition and she needs a heart transplant. And it's a plot about Marshall and another boy are vying for this new girl's attention. And Danielle Harris got... Her, um, she was a, a pretty recognizable child actress in the 80s and 90s, but she has been in a lot of horror movies. She's most famous for her work as a young kid in the Halloween films during in that franchise. I believe, I believe she's in three through, or not, sorry, not three, uh, four, four and five, possibly six. That is one of the major horror franchises that I'm the least versed in. I was a Friday the 13th girl, so sorry about that, guys. But I know there's some Daniel Harris fans out there who are listening to our show because they came over from Horror Movie Podcast. So I wanted to give give her a little shout-out. And then I thought the next episode we talk about, because it's the next one in succession of when it aired, um, would be The Dead Letter, letter which um, the story is fun, but the, the main thing of note is we get – Toby Maguire as the star of this episode. Young and, Toby. And he's playing a fun character. It's it's a ghost story episode. It was directed by Tim Hunter. It originally aired November 10th, 1991. And Toby Maguire plays the ghost of a young man named Trip McConnell. Also, how cool is that name? Good old Trip McConnell. And he appears to the boys. Simon and Marshall are in the library. There's a project to clean out some of the parts of the library. And they find this old letter. And when they open it, his ghost appears. And he basically uh, hounds them into delivering the letter that he wasn't able to to the to the girl he loved, who is still alive. And now, what would you say? She's like in her 80s? She's in her 70s, I think. Yeah, 70s for sure. It's hard to gauge age sometimes, you know? It's, but, especially since, like, the show is told through the lens of young people. So, right. like, my my favorite part about this episode was that the, like, Trip McConnell is like, I got to get a letter to my sweetheart. But yeah. he's also definitely, like, a 13-year-old Toby right. McGuire ghost. Yeah, um, he's a very old 13. He's an old <laughs> He's got an old soul, like in so many different ways. Um, well, and also, I, sorry. Go ahead, Drew. Well, I was just gonna say. I mean, we'll get to it. But when uh, they start talking to her about like Trip McConnell, the old the old lady, because the whole plot of the thing is to get the letter to the late girl, his girl, yeah. and she's like old now. 
And like she's like, I was supposed to marry him. And at first I was like, oh, they're probably like in high school together and they were like dating. And then Mm -hmm. you find out like they didn't ever even date and they were only like barely teenagers. (laughs) Crushing on each other. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, like he he hadn't spoke to her yet at the time of his death. So like how did she It's confusing They were in love, okay, Andy? (laughs) She's been upset about it for like 60 years. She was a 13 year old in love. Of the four episodes we watched for the podcast, I like this was the one, even though I have like an undying appreciation and love for Tobey Maguire's early work. um, I just felt like this episode felt out of continuity with the rest of the series because one Marshall is incredibly incredulous for no particular reason. Um, when he opens the letter, he's like, that's not a ghost. And also, I'm not participating. And he just kind of... Right, which is totally out of character. Because all the rest of the time, it's like, we need to get to the bottom of this. Right. Like, Marshall is willing to climb through every window in his small town to get to the truth. He is always climbing <laughs> through windows. He does not... The boy does not use a damn door. Uh, um, he doesn't realize what... The, I don't know. It was, it was around the same time as Clarissa explains it all, right. too. With her best friend, always came through the window. And then late, later, later '90s, it was Dawson's Creek. No, no one, no one uses it. The door. '90s were just window times. I just, I just never realized what a privilege it was to like have access to a door and have that also be the social norm I was raised in. <laughs> um, but yeah, like Marshall is just like he's being. His, he's being just like truculent as all get out and just kind of like storming around and being like a mystery. I don't have time for that because Marshall in a B plot also has a crush on a girl in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't really do much other than, you know, to serve a lesson of like, don't hesitate. You don't know how much time you have. But <laughs> it's kind of, I don't know. This, you could be hit by an egg truck this tomorrow. This is one of the... It's a milk truck. truck. Well, okay, so here's the thing. The milk truck is a recurring thing in this series, but it's never really explained (laughs) because the milk truck features prominently in an episode called The Lost Hour. And then there's an episode where they're carrying things. And I'm trying to remember which episode this is, but everything's in a milk crate. And it says Erie Milk Company or Erie Milk on the side of the Maybe crate. Maybe they had using. plans later so on. So I think, I honestly think that this series was intended to go for a longer run and that they were kind of developing a backstory about like how the milk truck fits into the greater conspiracy of Erie, <laughs> Indiana. But it's never explained, unfortunately. But yeah, other than that, this episode was kind of more, I threw it in as kind of a fun novelty. It's not really like one of the best written episodes of the series and we're strictly covering it for toby mcguire everyone's <laughs> because he's great in it it's it's fun to see him he's really charming and as a ghost he has this thing that's not explained but he has the ability to sort of just charm most people into doing what he wants other other than marshall and simon really but he, yeah apparently he shows up at marshall's house and is charming the entire family and they think he's really interesting and well, because he's Trip McConnell. I mean, yeah. come on. Honestly, and... like, Trip's interaction with the Teller family is so gosh dang charming. If you <laughs> have ever had a charismatic childhood friend who your family seemed to love 
more than you. Um, oh, right. <laughs> Andy yeah. and I had a mutual best friend like that growing up who could just, he was infallible and everyone just loved him. And... Oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Tripp Wait, Allison, like, did you love he, him? <laughs> he also didn't like to use the, the front door. No, he didn't. Oh, God. <laughs> now I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So just like, like, Marshall comes home and his parents are like, Tripp's going to stay forever. And in a more sinister lens, it just seems like everyone in his family is like totally like weirdly in love with him, but they're just so happy to have him around. Like Tripp is so interesting. Tripp is so smart. Tripp, honey, do you want to stay the night? Do you want to stay forever? And it's just like, there's no explanation of why he has this ability. Yeah, you definitely get the sense that he's, he's like, put some kind of, you know, how, like, vampires have glamour? Like, he's, like, mm-hmm. put some kind of glamour on them, but he's a ghost. I've never heard of ghost in any kind of ghost lore of that being a thing, but it's it's in there. Well, he was also, a, oh, go ahead, a, Drew. a young boy, but, like, he's polite. And I think people <laughs> are just, like, it. amazed <laughs> by, polite. like, the politeness from a young boy, and it just throws them off, and they're just mesmerized. It's, he, well, it's, so, it's interesting that they can see him at all, because I would assume that because um, Marshall and Simon were the ones that found the letter, that he would appear to them, you know, but and they, he, yeah, apparently he can manifest himself to, to just about anybody. But not everyone. Um, His ghost powers are very specific. He has teleportation, apparently um, hypnotism, telekinesis. But he can't cross the street. He, he cannot, cannot cross that street. Cross the street and he can't like teleport um or appear also okay here's a continuity thing there's a stamp on the trip letter yeah but i'm pretty sure he was you know just walking across the street from the library to hand deliver it to his beloved um and i feel like a mailbox across the street maybe i just no because she lives across the street from the library to make it official <laughs> I, I think it's there because children um, can identify letters with postage stamps, and I'm not sure they can identify letters without them. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's like a like an object permanent sort of thing. Sure. Wait, all, hmm? Oh, go ahead, Andy. I was going to say all letters obviously have uh, stamps on them. That's that's how letters work. Although these days, who even sends mail anymore? What would a kid today know about a letter? That's true. Wow. I still I still have to scratch my head and be like, so which address goes where on an envelope? How do right. I Well, it's like all the icons on phones that kids are learning these icons, but they don't understand the icons. Like they don't know why the phone icon looks like a weird U-shaped mustache thing, you know. <laughs> The old handset, yeah. Right, because they've never held, a, like, a handheld phone in their life. Or, you know, why the email has this, you know, thing on there. Eventually, they'll get bills in the mail, and they'll understand what a letter looks like. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> so, in the world of Erie, Indiana, ghosts have kind of weird abilities that I haven't ever really seen in other stories where a ghost shows up. Because, like you are saying, like he can show up at Marshall's house for some reason and charm the whole family. And well, they I think see Marsh- my understanding is Marshall's house is on one side of the street. Sure. So, like, the entire town, he can visit one side of it but not the other well, side. Well, there's an episode called The Hole in the Head Gang where they encounter a, the ghost of an old failed bank robber named Grungy Bill. And Grungy Bill 
actually. And I think it's kind of like an object connection thing because, you know, Tobey Maguire has the connection to the letter. And in the Grungy Bill episode, they find his old pistol. And when they have the pistol and they give it to him, he's able to, like, manifest in solid form. And then he's he's got to hold up the eerie bank because that's his, his life goal. He doesn't <laughs> going to do anything with the money. But he just, you know, he didn't complete that, and he feels like a failure, so he's got a grungy build, got to hold up that. So it's kind of, that's another one of the kind of, like, it's it's a fun episode, but it's not quite as deep or, or as, as much social commentary. It's just kind of silly. But um, the woman who plays the love interest, Mary, um, she's depicted uh, by an actress as a younger Mary back in the day, but the main actress who plays her as older Mary is named Herta Ware. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, it's W-A-R-E. But she played a cute little old lady in a lot of stuff in the 90s. But I'm mentioning her filmography because one thing of note is she played the mother of Captain Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek. The Next oh, Generation. that's where I'd seen her before. Yeah, yeah. She's adorable. And she's so cute in this, too. Like, even when she's super angry, you're just like, oh, <laughs> this, is a, this is a sweet lady. And she's she's got a cute face and... And she lights her eyes light up when she realizes that she was loved after all, and that's that's sweet, you know. I also really like the scene where she just smashes stuff up in her bedroom because she's mad. Yeah. <laughs> she wants them to get out, and she's smashing things. Yeah, those knickknacks are in danger. <laughs> I don't understand why she has this like obsession with this boy who was her like long lost love and his untimely death at the hands of a milk truck. Right. And she doesn't want to read the letter. It's a no. Faye Valentine, right. where it's like yeah. all of the also, answers you I see are right thinks- here. I think she thinks in the beginning that, like, they're mocking her and giving her, like, a fake letter. Like, she doesn't believe in ghosts or anything. Because that's what you But, like, you would do. at least think, you <laughs> could at least comprehend, like, maybe there was a letter written to you a long time ago and somebody found it, you know? Well, like, and like also, I, I found this letter in a book and it's addressed to you. Yeah, how are these actual children going to know anything about, you know, Trip McConnell from the year Dickity 2? Right. <laughs> 19 Dickity 2. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, it's it's a little it's a little convoluted, but you know, it's a cute cute story. It works. I figure we can move on from there to an episode that I thought was pretty awesome called Mr. Cheney. from the last one i didn't look it up and i was just trying to remember so was young what's her name was that played by the same girl that played her niece or not i believe it was i i think it was she looks really familiar i feel i feel because that always works out easily in tv shows i feel weird looking things up while we're actually recording because i feel that makes makes me seem like a really lazy podcaster. I know people do it. You got a giant page of notes. I do. It's not in there. Yeah. There were so many notes. Right. You didn't write notes for my question. Yeah, the actress that plays young Mary is Amy Brooks. And at the very end of the episode, we should probably, like, I don't know. I mean, hopefully you've seen this before we're talking about this. But she's reunited with Tripp, and she ends up um, meeting Tripp at the uh, World of Stuff, which is a little... It's, it's kind of like the five and dime, and it's got a little soda shop right. inside, and it's where everybody likes to hang out and buy stuff, and we're going to get to that because it's featured in an episode later. Oh, yeah. But oh, the world of stuff. The world of stuff. 
And and so the, she, she finally re- reunites with her trip McConnell, like, and then you see the next day. Oh, she and then and then you know they learn that she that she passed away, but you see you see Ghost Mary Young with Ghost Trip McConnell, and they're like together forever. So right. they're happy. So they're gonna spend an eternity as thirteen year olds together. It's gonna be great. That kind of sounds- <laughs> That kind of sounds like something that, you know, those twin boys were just trying to, ex- you know, right. escape that fate. <laughs> Whatever, I guess one person's heaven is another person's hell. Sure. But, yeah, so so we, we see them with a nice send-off. So, Mr. Cheney, that episode aired March 8th, 1992. And it stars a great actor who's been in many things, Mr. Stephen Root. Oh, fantastic. What a guy. Yeah. I love Stephen Root. He's he's so he's such a comedic actor, but he's also great at being serious and being really disturbing. Like if anybody saw Get Out, he's so creepy in that. Yeah. Um, but then it, and, and then on the other side of it, he's uh, Bill Dotrieve on King of the Hill, who is maybe yeah. the most harmless person to have ever existed. And I can't remember the name of the character on Office Space, but he's the Milton, guy, Milton right? and he's obsessed with his swing line stapler. Which is what he's <laughs> probably best known for. Yeah. People don't know who he is, but the second, like, you say, oh, he's, a, you, second, you just say, that, 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 that's my stapler. And then they know who he is. They're like, oh, yeah. Because people love that character. I'm trying to remember. I seem to have neglected to write down hmm. who I, I didn't write down who directed it. So I will get back to you guys on that one. But but for anybody who doesn't get the horror reference in the title, Mr. Cheney is a werewolf episode. So he had a ghost episode and we had a um, <laughs> a Tupperware episode. A <laughs> evil cult episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then now we have a werewolf episode. So, um, Drew just found it. So it was directed by Mark Goldblatt, who I'm not familiar with. Who did a lot of editing and on stuff. Yeah, he was, he was a very editor. prolific editor, but I think I, this is one of the only things he directed. Yeah, he it's edited a great episode. Terminator 2, Judgment Day, X-Men, Last Stand, True Lies. So a lot of action movie editing, which those movies take a ton of editing. So you got to be a pretty good editor to edit really good action because that's so much... Oh, my God. You know what he directed, though? What? Dead Heat. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Um, Way off the subject, but if you've never watched Dead Heat, it is the most, one of the most bizarre horror slash cop comedies. It's a buddy cop comedy (laughs) with a zombie plot, and it's it's wackadoo and and fun. It's amazing. It's a fun movie. (laughs) They covered it recently on Joe Bob's The Last Drive-In on Shudder. So if you're interested, Ooh. based on that description, you can check it out there and have it Which horror We still hosted. need to watch that episode. Yeah, we haven't watched we haven't watched his his hosted episode with him and Darcy. I believe it's also available on Tubi. I think I was scrolling through it last night and I saw Dead Heat on there because I remember that description. It's on a lot of things because it's one of those films that I think is really cheap and easy to get rights to you know? yeah yeah probably it wasn't it's it's more of it's like one of those cult movies where it's got a lot to love but didn't get out there very much but it's a good one 
I recommend it, but I recommend some weird stuff. So yeah, we 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 <laughs> like oddball movies around here. But yeah, so so the Mr. Cheney episode, the plot is that they have a Harvest King festival, uh, or the Harvest Festival annually, and then they have they elect a young man in the community to become the Harvest King, and it, it's kind of in the running is is Marshall and this other kid who we're originally introduced to in the episode, the hole in the head gang, which has grungy bill in it, but we're not really covering that in depth. But this, this character, this new character appears in that episode and he recurs throughout the rest of the series. And he's, his name is dash X, which for the first couple episodes, he's just known as the gray haired kid, but he's played by Jason Marsden. And he's just this weird kid that doesn't, um, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where he came from. He's and he's also very always out for himself. He's always conniving, and he's got this kind of just crazy mop of hair. Who is it? You said you thought he looked. He like? looks like a child version of Jim Jarmusch. Yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. So, Jason Marsden is actually a very prolific voice actor and was yeah. like in the '90s and the early 2000s too. And I, when I was watching this episode and I saw him, I was like, oh my gosh. Who, who does he remind me of? And I realized he is the voice of like all of my like cartoon crushes from childhood. <laughs> like he, he also, <laughs> um, awesome connection from this show is um, what's his name? The main character. Oh, um, Omri Katz. Omri Katz and him are both in Hocus Pocus because he does the voice for Thackeray Binks. Oh, the cat. Yeah. The cat. Yeah. He's, the cat. he's not the actor who plays him when he's a human. He just does the voice when, when he's in cat form. I would like to point out that Thackeray Banks was a childhood crush of mine. <laughs> I didn't care. He had such a charming, charming voice. He was a it very wasn't charming, until charming cat. Rewatching that later on, I always thought it was Zachary. And then, like, I was rewatching it, and it just kept hearing it in my head, and then I saw, like, the tombstone say Thackeray. <laughs> oh. Well, everybody just called him Binks throughout the whole right. movie, because that's more of a cat name, so he's I Binks. can understand why you... call me Binks. Yeah. But anyway, back back to this. So, we have we have this, this ritual, and basically, the town... Another character who's introduced in a previous episode who is in this but we're not covering the episode where he makes an appearance is a character played by the wonderful television and horror veteran john astin well not so much horror but more like horror comedy because you know him as gomez adams but he also did several episodes of the night gallery which i feel like we need to do a john astin episode of just him in the night gallery and mention some other work that he did in in the 60s and 70s but he plays um he plays the owner of the world of stuff, Mr. Radford. But when the series starts, Mr. Radford's plays by, played by this other guy. And then they explain that the first Mr. Radford was apparently an identity thief. And that he had, he had um, John Astin's character as the real Radford tied up in the basement. <laughs> and he was running the world of stuff. <laughs> well, Mr. Radford was in the basement, and everybody thought that the guy upstairs was the real Mr. Radford. So they have this episode, and I'm blanking on which one it is, where they show imposter Radford getting hauled away. And then you see 
the wonderful and that guy's really funny too. He's good in, in episodes and I and I did not write down the actor's name, but John Aston shows up and he explains that he's been in the basement the whole time and he's not gonna press charges because he was in the red before fake Radford took over and he was a kick ass salesman. <laughs> and so, you know, he can't really he's like the six months I was in the basement are the most money we ever made. <laughs> so he Oh, Sorry, he's kind of like a, a, he's, he's not really like town counselor or anything, but you know, it's a small town and he's one of the town elders in a way. And so he's in on this decision to who do we nominate for the Harvest King? And when they ask questions about, well, what happened to previous Harvest Kings? And they're like, oh, well, you know, they went to Spain and like, no one's ever seen them since. Oh yeah, well they're you know in Spain because they win so many yeah, prizes. Yeah, like that's how great it is. And so Marshall's skeptical and worried, and Dash X also becomes worried when he's been like snooping around, and he decides to rig the the selection to make it Marshall. So Marshall ends up getting selected. Well, but, he rigs it after the the towns like the town had picked him had picked the gray haired kid yeah and no one knew his name so they literally just put on the ticket the gray haired kid I and like they were just gonna get rid of the gray haired kid because they knew that he would disappear well when they're he, like no one's gonna miss that kid he's an outsider nobody knows him he doesn't seem to have any you know any ties it's pretty anywhere. sinister. You know, yeah, it's he's always sinister. stealing stuff. It's it's very hot fuzz of them. They decide he's he's a disposable human being, and they have this whole conversation about well, it's for the good of the all, yeah, which the greater good. That is, is a, very hot fuzz. It's a I didn't common, think about that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a common theme. And and Val, you were saying before we started recording that it's basically a Shirley Jackson that Shirley Jackson's short story. And did you want to, did you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like if you are up to date on sort of where horror and horror television are going right now, Shirley Jackson is very of the moment. Um, but her short story, The Lottery, is about, um, like, colonial New England society. And on actually June 26th, every year, there's a lottery and all the towns do it. And there's like a little aside that some of the towns in New England have gotten so large that they have to start their lottery the night before. But essentially, like, everyone writes their name down on a card and they put it in and they don't explain to you why they're doing it until like the end of the short story. But it's, um, it's essentially like a it's tradition, so a lot of people don't call mm -hmm. into question. The lottery is barbaric. It's a very violent ritual that essentially requires the personal sacrifice, which is the stoning of a person to death, to the appeasement for uh, either religious, ritual, or economic reasons. And so the Harvest King is very much like a very heavy-handed homage to Shirley Jackson's sort of this is what we do sort of bear baiting ritual. Um, but also like, I like how in Erie, Indiana, the reason why they continue to indulge this, this harvest King event every year is, is that, or no, it's every 13 years is right. that they want low taxes. Yeah. <laughs> which so like the taxes thing comes up a lot in this show. Yeah, right. I feel like they're commenting on, on the fact that a lot of people are okay with a lot of human suffering in our country as long as their taxes are low. Because this show is definitely, you know, kind of going in a certain political direction and it becomes yes. more 
latent in, in later episodes. Maybe when they figured out they weren't getting to do another season, because they kind of let it fly as it goes on. Right. You mean like in the later episode when they say they're talking about a crazy guy and they say he might be a max axe murderer or possibly a liberal. Well, yeah, there's a, there's an episode called no brain, no pain where they encounter a homeless man who keeps babbling about the song, my Sharona. And they think he's the, the mad whacker is what they call him. And I go, oh, no, that's the mad whacker. And, and Marshall's mom says, well, I don't care if he's a liberal or an axe murderer, but we're not getting involved. <laughs> and so they're just, you know, it's, it's, it, it comes up over and over again, and they make they make a lot of Dan Quayle jokes in that episode also because it was of the time. Right. <laughs> it was what was going on. But I think it's interesting to think about the fact that, you know, there's it comes up in science fiction and in horror a lot, this idea of, you know, is it okay to have a seemingly perfect society or a society where, every, where it works for everyone except for a small few who are suffering intensely? And the answer is no, but it's kind of how a lot of things work in this world, as we're seeing today, you know, it's a question we're being confronted with again and again. And it's it's something, you know, like, it's in the plot of The Wicker Man. I'm kind of wondering, do you remember what the date on the short story was that, that uh, Shirley Jackson wrote, Val? Um, I want to say it was from the 70s. Honestly, I don't know. I haven't read it in, in many, many years. Um I'm wondering if it inspired the screenplay for The Wicker Man or, you know, one or the other. Because in The Wicker Man, I mean, there's there's a little bit more of a sort of a Christianity versus paganism kind of vibe going on in that story. But there's also a society built on we must make a sacrifice to it's continue so on. published in 1948 in the New York. Oh, so damn, I was super yeah. wrong. Okay. Um, but yeah, I I like that. There's a theme that emerges in a lot of YA literature, because I think that a lot of people take like books and media oriented towards young people to ask like these greater philosophical questions about what does it mean to be a member of a society or a group? Um, and there's a couple of really great like early 2000s, late 90s um, YA novels that ask this question about like, is the... Um, is the containment of information, like concealing the truth of what the Harvest King is, for example, like what happens to that young man who becomes the Harvest King, is that actually for the benefit of society? Is it better if we all just agree to not talk about it? And like, do we need these rituals at all? Like the giver is mm -hmm. uh, along those same lines. Um, that uh, Margaret Peterson Haddix wrote a, a young movie about a, a, or a book about a young girl who goes up, grows up in a colonial um, amusement park essentially because it's sort of like a an M Night Shyamalan the village sort of thing where they've decided okay. that modern society oh, is corrupt. Yeah, yeah I think it's called Stuck in Time. Yeah, yeah, I read that when I was in like oh. fifth grade. Yeah, I read that in elementary school too, and it's like I think that it's really important that shows like Erie, Erie Indiana were not only like poking fun at the absurdity of this concept because it's something that all of the incompetent adults around him just accept as being like well it's not great but like you know we can't <laughs> argue harvest low taxes low taxes which is absolutely not how taxes work um right. no but yeah it's like it's well, one of the people that's that in on it is the mayor oh <laughs> the of mayor's like, well, we love the low taxes it's not how taxes work does he not know either does no one know 
That, no. well, the, the werewolf clearly controls the taxes for the town. Right. I mean, yeah. So, so the, the Harvest King, when, when Marshall's elected Harvest King, he's told that he has to go face the eerie wolf. And so he goes out with Mr. Cheney and they sit by a campfire and it kind of turns into this kind of campfire tale kind of setting, which is fun. But he, everything that he wants to do, um, Mr. Cheney says, you can't do that. The wolf doesn't like that. And he's getting weirder and weirder <laughs> well, about Every it. time he says the wolf, he says the wolf. Yeah. And so, Mr. Cheney, and if you have not gotten this reference by now, it's referring to Lon Cheney Jr., who was the original Wolfman. And he's sitting there, and he eventually turns full wolf. He goes and wolfs out. And, yeah, and he attacks Marshall. And Marshall is is rescued when... Um, when the gray-haired Ms. kid. Yeah, gray-haired kid, and also Mr. Radford show up to the rescue because Mr. Radford decides that he doesn't want to participate in this no, messed up system anymore, that's, which that's is later. really cool. Yeah, that's oh, yeah, later that's, in the that's episode. That's a little he's, later. Sorry. Yeah, they, I think Simon and the gray-haired kid save him by Show just... Right. The gray-haired yeah, they, they whack him with a tree. With a log. Yeah, right. yeah. Sorry, guys. They, they which has another gray-haired What was that? Oh, they take him to the teller house and wrap him up, and they're like, don't wake up my parents. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. But there's a great line when the gray-haired kid knocks out Mr. Cheney, and I don't remember what Marshall said, you know, like right. something, and he says, who do you think it is, the log, log lady? lady? Yeah, no, great reference. Because there's a ton of, hard at that. there's a lot of, like, um, Twin Peaks crossover and references. There's also a, an actor that's in this that was in Twin Peaks as well. Who plays so, a cop in both shows. Yeah, yeah. The a guy goofy who plays, cop. The guy who plays Andy in Twin Peaks <gasps> is a cop. Andy! Oh, and Deputy Andy. He's in a few episodes. Right. Deputy Andy is my favorite. So... <laughs> He's not he's not in any of the episodes that we cover really though. He's in the Tornado Days episode fairly prominently. Right, and he's in the episode with the Kooky Road Show. Yeah, the Tornado Days episode is a good one too that I recommend. It has it stars Matt Frewer as a who 80s people knew as as Max Headroom, but he's also just a great character actor who was on um, the show Eureka as a crazy scientist. And Which he was, is very um, similar to this show. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a similarity and vibe to with the show Eureka and the show as far as with the community and the quirkiness. And mm-hmm. then he was also on a miniseries that Steven Spielberg put out called Taken, which was about alien abduction, and that was a pretty good mini miniseries. But yeah, so so check that one out. Um, but he he's in that as well, Andy. He's, he's keeping the peace when uh, Tornado Bob shows up. <laughs> but yeah, this... So, sorry, guys, I, missed, I, mi- I mixed up my plot points. But at some point, they make a joke about the howling, too. They go off about how they love the howling, which is hilarious because oh, well, Joe they Dante... All, it was when they were all deciding to just make it the gray-haired kid. Yeah. And it's like, as they're making the decision, it's hurried along, like, well, just make that decision, because i got to get home, because they're showing the howling tonight. I love that. And they all go, oh, <laughs> the howling, I love that. Which is a Joe Dante movie. Yeah, so... About when... werewolves. So it's like a double double Easter egg right there. Right. The meta humor in this world that they've crafted, it would be so wonderful. It feels very, like... um. And Andy, I don't know if you picked up on this, but it feels very similar to Venture Bros, just like how 
It is very Venture Brothers-esque. Yeah, because, like, they introduce a bunch of characters, and then um, they just, like, like Allison pointed out, the continuity, like, this world is extremely extremely fleshed out. And these characters just keep showing up. Like, the milkman is such a prominent thing that never gets explained. And the twins, who are elderly, become milkmen at one point. Yeah. From the Foreverware episode, it's really it's it's really fantastic. Well, they the, the twins I'll... the twins drive a an ambulance car at one point too because they come to pick somebody up in one of the episodes. Like they, it's weird. There's they get a lot of odd jobs. They get a lot of odd jobs, <laughs> but the the milkman thing is strange because the last hour uh, deals with time slips and like kind of alternate realities, and then the you know, but there's this milkman that traverses amongst it and and he has connections to Marshall and it's, I kind of almost wish, well, I would have loved more episodes and if they'd had the time and money to, to flesh out more of the world, you know, and actually take some of those threads that look like they were going somewhere and weave them into some, some more stories and kind of add more to the eerie mythos. It would have been, it would have been really great to see. I think around the time that this started to, to end, um, I mean, Joe Dante, like I said, he he directed some of the episodes, but he had a, a heavy hand in this as a creative consultant because they really liked what his style and his tastes. And he went off to make the movie Matinee, which came out right after this. And Omri Katz is one of the character plays one of the characters in Matinee as well, so you can tell they they must have had a good working relationship. But he shows up as himself in one of the very last episodes. They have a sort of um a meta episode where it's it's called Reality Takes a Holiday, where Marshall wakes up and everyone's calling him Omri, and his family is all telling him that they're just actors and everything's just a set, and Joe Dante's on set as a director. It's pretty... I, I haven't rewatched that one in a while, but it's it's kind of a trip, and I think it's, it's fun how much they sort of crafted kind of a little bit of a love letter to Joe Dante in this. <laughs> and as someone who loves the burbs a lot this show kind of feels like a nice companion piece like I almost feel like the people in in the neighborhood and the burbs could exist as a neighboring community to Erie Indiana oh absolutely yeah so are we do we want to talk more about what happens in the Mr. Cheney episode like yeah how I think that there's still up? a few things yeah, yeah we could wrap it up um, I mean, the, the werewolf is tied up and, uh, the sister comes down. Um, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And they scream at each other and the werewolf runs away. He's not, he's not a terribly good werewolf, it seems. Right. <laughs> I like that Simon, Simon, who's given werewolf duty to watch him, gets distracted by Pi and he just yes. gets this big grin on his face. Oh, he was enjoying that apple he, pie he's so much. He's one of my <laughs> very favorite characters on the show. Like, he's just adorable, and he's just enjoying life. And I can relate. It's like, oh, there's pie on the counter. You know, the werewolf's not going anywhere. I'm, he's knocked out. <laughs> he also tells the werewolf to stay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what's the, God, what's the gray-haired kid say when they're, um, when he's telling Simon to watch him, he's like, and if he tries anything funny, give him the kerplow or something. Yeah. <laughs> the kabong, I think. Yeah, kabong. Oh, kabong. Which I think is a, 
I mean, probably a reference to El Cabong. El Cabong. I don't know yeah. if you guys watched those when you were kids. Of course. Or if that was not doing reruns anymore. No, it was definitely in, in syndication also on, like, yeah. Cartoon Network when Andy and I were growing up. El Cabong! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is totally apropos of nothing, but the El Cabong thing reminded me of it. Andy, do you remember the 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 shorts from Cartoon Network where they did like updated trailers for old cartoons? Like they had a Jabberjaw one. Um, oh yeah, music yeah. videos and stuff for them. Yeah. The El Cabong one is so good. I, oh God, I'll have, I'll have to YouTube that. YouTube and I don't Wasn't remember. there? Didn't they also do an El Cabong episode on Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law? Well, of yes, course. they did. Yes. They absolutely did. <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that show's great. I don't I don't know if you know the band Kalehiko, um, but they did an instrumental like little short about El Cabong and it's it's really beautifully animated and it's just so heartwarming and it, it fills me with all kinds of like weird, like several different nostalgia layers. Aww. Oh, so so to, to get back to the ending of this, um, and it was a few days ago when I watched this episode and then a bunch of stressful things happened, which is why I'm blanking on the plot for this one. So apologies, um, the stress brain. But yeah, they so they have, when the werewolf escapes and they find him again, in the meantime, they're getting a silver bullet to take care of him, basically. And... Marshall his reign of Marshall terror. is Marshall is scratched in the later confrontation with Mr. Cheney and uh, Mr. Radford is hesitant to take a shot when he sees Marshall and, and the werewolf struggling because he doesn't want to shoot Marshall and then finally Dash X kind of just takes hold of the gun a little bit and causes him to shoot him in the foot so Mr. Cheney gets to be Mr. Cheney again and live which is cool we're never, we're never told what happened to those other boys. They moved to Spain. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of we had this con- we had this conversation about it because Marshall's concerned because he was scratched, but Marshall's still alive and he's around, so we get to see what happens to him, and we'll get into a little that a little bit more. But there's Drew and I were discussing this. We're like, well, if this was a darker show, there would definitely be a bunch of dead boys buried somewhere and a or, big or, conspiracy you know if this is like the bones at least yeah right if this was like the twin peaks universe or hell even you know something like dark shadows where you have a supernatural being there's definitely going to be an actual body count but in this it's conceivable to me that mr cheney may have at one point been one of those boys and that there was an older werewolf and that as he grew and became the werewolf he became the new wolf of erie indiana and that maybe he changed his name or he was always mr cheney but it was just kind of swept under the rug i'm not sure but i don't i don't necessarily assume that there is foul foul play in this story but maybe i mean people die in the show so maybe a bit of fur play right (laughs) well so so marshall's concerned about his scratch after after all this is settled with mr cheney and then and then uh, Mr. Radford, in this really awesome scene, makes a concoction for Marshall to drink back at the world of stuff. And so he's boiling a cauldron like a classic horror movie witch. And he's adding different things like chicken blood to the mix and, 
and um, both Simon and Dash X are watching intently and kind of um, Dash X is heckling Marshall about how he's going to have to drink this gross thing. And then, and Simon's just grinning and happy to be there. And he's, what was the eyeball he had? He said it was somebody's, it was somebody horror related. It was, oh, Vlad the Impaler's eyeball. Right. So he <laughs> says, careful with yeah, that. They're yeah. hard to come by. Right. Because <laughs> there would be only two. And so he uses it as a garnish and he makes this, this really beautiful, garish looking, Sunday looking thing that he gives to Marshall. Yeah, he Marshall puts whipped cream drink. on top. Yeah, it's so hilarious. <laughs> and it's and it's all in a phosphate glass, you know, because they're at the they're at the soda, soda counter. counter. Yeah, yeah, classic soda counter. And it, but it's just so great to see John Aston mixing up the brew with that wild look of glee in his eyes. <laughs> so satisfying, and then. At the very end of the episode, we learn that Marshall does have slight side effects when the full moon comes, but it's just, he just gets some mutton chops, and that, that's it. <laughs> yeah. He says he'll blame Every it on Every full moon, he grows mutton chops. And his, his awesome, I didn't mention, uh, I mean, obviously in the last episode, the evidence would be the letter um, from the from the dead letter, which was what the evidence that goes in the eerie evidence locker that Marshall and Simon keep. But in right. this one, he puts his crown from when he was crowned Harvest King. And it's a really fun crown. As somebody mm-hmm. who loves costume stuff, I was like, oh, that, that crown kind of kicks ass. And so he labels that, tags it, and puts it in the evidence locker at the end while he's got his mutton chops. So one last quick note. It's not really on any subject. It's just a fun thing. Um, when Dash X is, he at one point is in the library trying to look up all the newspaper articles from every... 13th year when they have the harvest festival and the headlines that are on the tops of the uh newspapers the current one is chisel wins in mayor landslide which is the current mayor but then the mayor 19 chisel. yeah the <laughs> 1979 one is disco craze sweeps indiana and then 1927 <laughs> is prohibition why we love it <laughs> Good old eerie Indiana. <laughs> All right. Anybody have any final thoughts on that episode before we head into zombies and PJs? I don't, but I also, I think I have to leave. Um, oh. I thought we were going to be done um, by 10. I'm so sorry. Uh, hey, I know you have work I... in the morning. Yeah, I, I have, I have stuff that I need to finish up before I go to sleep, but um, thank you, you so much just... for... Do you have like do you have some quick comments you want to make about zombies and PJs or the series as a whole before we have you sign off? Um, I really so the series as a whole like it I hadn't really seen it in its entirety. Um, I've definitely seen like a couple of episodes that I recalled like the Foreverware and the second episode which is about dogs and retainers which we decided was too gross to discuss. Um, <laughs> and I just like. I'm so happy that Allison suggested this and brought this back into sort of my um, television viewing habits because it is such a delightful, well-thought-out and well-constructed, like, one-season wonder. It reminds me a lot of um, my so-called life in that way where it's like, I would have loved more, but it's also, it's so good the way that it is. Um, And, like, you know, everything about zombies and PJs felt very timely in the same way that um, 
Mr. Cheney felt very timely. And I'm just, I'm going to go back and I'm going to rewatch the whole series because I only really watched a, a handful of episodes just for this. But uh, I'm really, I'm so happy to have been reintroduced to just how smart children's television programming has the potential to be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, I really enjoyed watching all of these and I'm really looking forward to getting your guys' thoughts on the last one at a different late, at a different time. Well, thank, thanks, Val. It's been great. And I loved a lot of what you had to say, especially for the episode about the, you know, the Mr. Cheney and the Harvest Festival and all that. Like that was, it was just great to have your input. And I thought a lot about you guys when I was rewatching this, rewatching this series and getting reacquainted with it and just thinking of all the things that, that you and Andy would appreciate. So I'm really glad that you guys took the time to get into this this piece of childhood memorabilia that's meant a lot to me because I saw this when it was first on TV and I was just hooked and I was I was a little kid who would watch in search of reruns and read those time those time life uh books that each one was about some different kind of um supernatural thing or there was like yeah the time life mysteries there was a volume about the UFOs and pyramids and Bigfoot and all that and I just ate up all that stuff so this show meant a lot to me as a kid and it's really great to be able to share it with my brother and sister so (laughs) have a good night val thanks Thanks so much for joining us i love you guys i'll see you later yeah bye good night and then there were three (laughs) all right yeah we went we went longer than i thought we would too and started later so anyways some some people in the family have a monday through Friday nine to five and we're recording on a Sunday night so yeah what a what a life what a life I know the rest of us have a different schedule (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah so I'm excited to talk about zombies and pjs for a lot of reasons one of them is the director that that was for this episode but this this episode aired on April 12th 1992 originally and it was directed by Bob Balaban are you familiar with Bob Balaban, Andy? I am Being not. A... He's he's actually the only director of the episodes we watched that I didn't look up what he'd done previously because I was he running a, out of time. He did a few episodes of Erie, Indiana as well. So obviously there was a good creative relationship there because they kept having him back. But yeah, he um, horror fans know, a lot of horror fans know his 1989 movie called Parents, which also is kind of a dark something's not right in suburbia kind of movie about a boy who realizes his parents are cannibals. Oh no. Randy Quaid's in that. That's, that's a high recommend if you're a horror fan and you want kind of a quirky, it's not like a, it's an uber violent cannibal movie. It's, it's more along that, that line of kind of those late eighties, early nineties throwback to fifties and sixties films. And it's, it's definitely creepy. Mm. It's an interesting watch. I liked it. And then Bob Balaban also, he's known a lot for acting more so than directing, but he did, he directed an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. He directed an episode of Amazing Stories. He did three episodes for Erie, Indiana. And then he directed a film that I know Drew's fond of called My Boyfriend's Back. That's a great movie. Yeah. Another cult classic that not a lot of people know about that's kind of a kooky, kooky 90s thing. And he did did um, a couple episodes of a Twilight Zone revival that happened in 2002. But mostly he's known for his acting. He was in several of the Christopher Guest movies. Like he was in A Mighty Wind. 
was one of the ones that I think a lot of people know him from. He was on Seinfeld. He played an NBC executive named Russell Dalrymple. That's, I think, the first thing I ever remember seeing him in. Hmm. Um, he's And he's great because he kind of does kind of understated humor, and he often plays kind of like soft-spoken, slightly neurotic characters, which is like <laughs> perfect, perfect for um, Seinfeld. And... There's so many things that he did, and I feel like there's something great that I'm gonna, I'm gonna miss. And some some Bob Balaban fans gonna be out there listening, and they're gonna be yelling at yelling at their their listening device, and being like, "But what about this?" <laughs> so sorry, sorry for that. But he, yeah, he's a recognizable face. Like if you Bob actually saw Balaban him, fans. and I always forget that he directed as much as he did. To be honest, gosh, what was I thinking? There's a film that I was thinking of that I that I completely forgot that he was in um but he's been acting since gosh like the late oh he was in Midnight Cowboy that's the one that I was like I'm gonna kick myself if I forget so yeah he was in A Mighty Wind he was in Gosford Park um he just has a quick role in Midnight Cowboy he is one of the people who solicits he solicits sex from uh John Voight's character in that movie oh okay um, he's in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He was in a really great, timely political film from 1992 that's a satire called Bob Roberts that stars Tim Robbins as a conservative folk singer senatorial candidate. And it has a very young Jack Black in it. So if that's your kind of thing, check that out. But um, so many, so many things. But I really like him when he shows up in the Christopher Guest films because that's those are those are fun. He's in Best in Show. He's in Waiting for Guffman. Just small characters, but in all of them. And he does a narration for Moonrise Kingdom. Anyway, Bob Balaban, Bob Balaban is somebody that I like when I see him show up in things, and I think he does a great job directing this episode. And the plot of the episode is Mr. Radford, again, played by John Astin, is, well, he owes probably over a decade's worth of back taxes because he's never filed and he's going to be audited. And he's stressing out because he's basically broke and the world of stuff isn't doing that great. And this demonic character shows up on the scene and says, I can make all your problems go away if you just sign this contract. And he, he's played by uh, actor Rene Benoit. How would you say that, Andy? I think it's Azure Benoit. Azure Benoit? Okay. I think. I don't speak French, but I, that's right. how I've heard it pronounced. Same, same, same problem here. Anyway, he plays a character who asks that the other characters refer to him as the Donald, which <laughs> is a pointed reference at someone who is now in the Oval Office. So that's that's interesting. And he plays a demon, basically. And he he has he has this contract that he has Mr. Radford sign. And he says, I can, you know, basically you sign this and we'll get every item in your in your store sold in the next 48 hours. Leave it to me. So he uh, he ends up enlisting the help of Dash X because Dash X is like, oh, this guy's crooked and, you know, sleazy and seems like a good role model for me so he ends up 
getting a matching suit with the Donald and a matching ponytail, which yeah, is so ill-advised. <laughs> yeah, Marshall makes a crack about the ponytail at one point. About how it's, you know, he's an untrustable person. Which yeah, but never funny. trust a businessman with a ponytail. Right. And that was definitely a 90s thing, like a 90s sleazebag trope. The businessman with a ponytail. Right. And sunglasses. Mm-hmm. They'd wear a suit, a ponytail, and sunglasses. That's how you knew they were a sleazy businessman. Mm-hmm. Well, and and uh, the character, the Donald, is also wearing a tie with dollar signs on it. And this yeah. super loud suit that he's wearing. It's just fantastic. A power suit and yeah. a power tie. <laughs> so they go they go about setting up an ad campaign that's hypnotic and it comes on towards the evening and the citizens of Erie see it and it has a catchy jingle where they're just saying just can't get enough like over and over again and it kind of reminds me of um if anybody's ever seen the 80s film The Stuff I was going to mention that because it's it's very the stuffy yeah, this episode has a lot of a lot of similar vibes to it. And everybody in Marshall's family becomes hypnotized to this ad campaign. Marshall and Simon are immediately suspicious, but then they have that age-old Freddy Krueger style dilemma of, well, we have to sleep eventually. And once we fall asleep, we'll be prey to the subliminal messaging coming from these commercials. So hilarity kind of ensues as the family zombies out into the street in their pjs and the boys spend there's a sequence where the boys are trying to stay awake and they slap each other does that kind of remind you as someone who watched the show pete and pete does that kind of seem like that could have been a pete and pete moment <laughs> very much so there, there yeah. were a lot of little moments between simon and marshall in this that reminded me a lot of pete and pete I also feel like the Pete and Pete world and the Erie, Indiana world could exist side by side. Oh, and, sure. And that you could have even... Like they're neighboring towns. You could have even yeah. had an episode where the where Pete and Pete meet Marshall and Simon and have some kind of weird, wacky adventure together. Like, that, <laughs> that would have been super plausible. Um, so somebody make a comic of that. So I want to read it. <laughs> anyway, so, so the family... And pretty much everyone else in town is zombie walking to the Midnight Madness sale at the World of Stuff. And, you know, constant catchphrases like, you know, instant credit and no payments till whenever and buy a bunch of things that you don't need. You know, it's just like all these basically everything that's ever been used in marketing is kind of lampooned in this episode and people are just picking up random things that they'd probably never buy but they're just either sleep shopping in fact drew didn't you compare it to when people are on ambien yeah when people get on ambien and go on uh amazon and all of a sudden uh, two weeks later stuff starts showing up their house they don't remember buying oh that just reminds (laughs) me so we saw something super creepy last night what were we watching there was an ad we were watching something on imd IMDb TV where they have commercials inserted into things and we were watching a show for a minute and they had an ad for Amazon now has a shopping program just like QVC where they showcase things that are available for sale on Amazon to get people to buy them and I always thought QVC was really creepy you know and it was like a hallmark of the 80s and 90s of shopaholics and I feel like it's unnecessary now that everybody can just kind of one-click shop all over the internet, which 
has a lot of negative ramifications, I feel like, for, yeah. for the world in a lot of ways, as somebody who participates in that, you know, it's something I think about all the time, but there's a lot of mindless consumerism has always been a huge part of our society. And here's this super creepy ad for this real shopping program run by Amazon now. And it just kind of gave me chills. And it's so perfect because we're talking about this episode, the mm-hmm. zombies and PJs. And, well, I, a, a line that they said, which is still true almost 30 years later, you know, and he says, you turned our family into zombies. He says, they're not zombies, they're consumers. Yeah, and then Josh X says, what's, what's the, the difference? difference? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's true. Well, there's a really interesting, like if we want to go real deep with this, and and Val and I have talked about this in the past, so she'll probably recognize it when she, if she listens to the episode. I don't know if she likes to listen to our episodes or not, but if she, if she does, um, we talk, we were talking about it one time we were hanging out that there is this great BBC Four documentary from, I'm gonna say it's from the early to mid 2000s. I'm not sure when it originally aired, but you can find it on YouTube. And if I can find it again, I'll post the link in our show notes. But it's called The Century of the Self. And it explores how Freudian psychology began influencing advertising on Madison Avenue and how they began using these techniques and also things they were learning from people's therapy sessions as research for how they feel about products. And that started ideas like the focus group where you'd have people come together and talk about how they feel about a product and how likely they'd be able to be willing to buy it and get all this research and get, get in people's heads and figure out what kinds of emotional reactions and responses you need to trigger in advertising in order to get people to buy something. And it's fascinating and it's also really disturbing. Oh yeah. And it even, yeah. It even kind of weirdly in a loose way kind of ties into like, like some like MK Ultra research stuff as well, like loosely. But if you want to watch the documentary about how Freud's nephew, Eddie Baronet's, uh helped Madison Avenue design the modern marketing schemes that we live with today, it's a fascinating watch. It's a little bit dry, but it's so informative. Like one of the one of my favorite moments was when they originally came out with cake mix in a box, it wasn't selling well. Everything you need was in the box. You just add water, put it in a pan, put it in the oven, right? Mm -hmm. And as somebody who grew up with a sweet tooth and wanting to just have instant brownies or instant cake, I was always annoyed by the fact that you would need to add oil and eggs or butter and eggs or however you like to do with your cake mix because people like to doll those up now. But as a kid, I was just like, I just want the cake. And I didn't care about the quality. And I just wanted, you know, I was annoyed that I had to add things. But in the era of when cake mix came out, the average suburban housewife had very much beaten to their head that they're meant to cook meals for their family. Their role is to be the provider. And so they weren't buying these instant box mixes because they felt like they weren't participating in the process of making the food enough. And they interviewed these women and they talked about it and they realized we need to have them add an egg. So adding an egg and adding oil is arbitrary. Made it feel like cooking. You could freeze dry those ingredients and just add water to them like the technology exists. It'd be gross, like, frankly. But (laughs) you could, you, that was available in the 50s. You could just do that. And so they added the egg 
to appease the psyche of the average homemaker. Mm-hmm. And then the cake mix sold. And that, to me, that's diabolical. That that's why that's there. You you add an egg. <laughs> because, and that's But that's marketing in a nutshell. What drives you? What makes you tick? And we don't use that information to heal society or to get people to be less racist or to care about other people. We use it to get them to buy things they don't need, which is what this episode's about. You know, yeah, well, it's a very... It's... Yeah, go ahead, Andy. It's it's worse today than ever. It's worse than most people uh, think because all of the data that you are wittingly or unwittingly providing to services you um, use, uh, Facebook, Google, uh, all all the apps on your phone, everything collects data on you. And most of these apps sell that data to advertisers and they create a digital profile of you. And they can do some very, very... um, specific profiling of people. They can get personality traits down based on data they collect from these, ad, um, these apps, and then they can target mm-hmm. advertising to you for more stuff that, that you will like, but that you do not need. And kind of to tie in with the Mr. Cheney episode, a lot of this stuff that we don't need that's made is on the backs of poor countries and the people in those countries work for slave wages. And our economic system is built on the backs of modern day slavery. Like maybe that sounds to listening audience like a radical concept. You know, you could call me whatever name you want to. I'm just saying that's that's a reality. It's a reality we don't want to acknowledge. It's because part of it is we're so entrenched. It's like, okay, well, I know that and I don't want to cause suffering. Well, how do I disengage from that? How do I make better choices, especially when my budget's limited, or maybe I have kids to feed, or I have all these stressors and my life's already so complicated. Like, how do I disengage from this massive system? And even if I do, it's still going to keep continuing. And, and I think advertising and the way a lot of our society is structured knows the power of that guilt. And so we're, we're kind of soothed and appeased and, oh, don't, don't look at the man behind the green curtain. Don't worry about the slaves rowing the oars of the ship down in the bottom, <laughs> just stay up here on top and enjoy your business class. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's diabolical really. And we're, we're right now at a time where we're in the thick of it and we're being asked to actually be aware of what life is like for other people outside of our own little sphere and our own little bubble. And I think that's a, an amazing and wonderful thing, but it's creating a lot of chaos and a lot of conflict. And here we are, we're in the mud and we're struggling. And I really hope that um, that humanity pulls through, but it's been a scary time. And I think this episode, you know, it's a light, it's a light conversation at a level that's cool to have with kids about how this is happening without getting really dark. And I think that's really important, but it's just so amazing that this is, you know, well, this was this was a long time ago, and we're still dealing with we're still dealing with the fact that we mindlessly consume. Except for now, we have the internet, so it's so much easier to. I don't do. know if you can say it doesn't get too dark, considering in the end of this episode, everyone's getting on a bus to hell. Well, okay, it does get dark. <laughs> it does get dark. But I'll say here's here's why I'm saying it's not that dark. We don't we don't spend a, like it's a little joke. We don't spend a lot of time thinking deeply about what's what's going on it's just like so everybody who goes to the world of stuff in this episode 
signs a contract with the Donald. Boy, mm. did we all sign a contract with the Donald? I don't know. That's what it feels like. I mean, I don't remember signing anything, but Everyone I probably signed did something. A track, signed a contract with the Donald, and they're getting on the a bus thing. to go to hell. Here's the thing, and I promise I'll get off my soapbox in a minute, but here's the thing. If we don't like what's happening, we need to all take a moment and look at how we're complicit and how we're accountable, because we are all co-creators of this of this world we live in in one way or another and some people have more power and influence and privilege than others but each of us need to figure out what that is and realize our impact and what we can do differently but we all kind of we all in some way some either a little way or a big way got us where we are now and we've got the donalds on our backs <laughs> and and until we until we figure that out we can totally get the donald off our backs but we have to do the work and figure that out and so i hope we do i really uh, do but that but, sounds hard allison i'd rather just buy something on amazon and ignore it i know <laughs> i know like you don't want to make i mean i'd i'd rather just watch a bunch of episodes of stranger things you know <laughs> like live that 90s nostalgia but you know what the problems of that era were also the problems of this era it's like we're just doomed to repeat these same lessons in a harder and harsher and louder way until we get it well i, and, I don't think we're doomed to repeat because we never stopped having those problems i think right. we just we just grew up and realized that they were still problems right so so cheers to becoming painfully aware and if that's where you're at we're with you too and and yeah. And if, if, if that's not where you're at, we're sorry for proselytizing, but... No, I'm not sorry. Okay. I, I am done being sorry about that, <laughs> but but that's all I'm going to say for this episode. So, so the Donald gets all these contracts, everybody signs one, and eventually Marshall and Simon do fall asleep. It happens during the day, and the funny kind of moment with that is they wander in, nothing's left except for two things. One is a really kick-ass Elvis lamp, which Simon gets. Right. <laughs> and the other is this disguise kit that Marshall had returned previously because he didn't have the money to pay back his mom from when he initially bugged her to buy it. And it says, like, I think it's like, disguise is so good your mother won't even know you or something like right. that. And it, and it becomes <laughs> a plot device beyond him having to, to buy it again. Right. And so, and nobody has to pay for any of these things you up front. You just have to sign a contract. And it's, it's all bought on credit. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, no one How reads the fine print. And they find that, finally, the way they even get a hold of their contract and realize what the actual contract is, is Dash X, who thinks he's getting, as he calls it, his piece of the pie, which is yep. so funny because it's such a cartoon way to describe getting his cut. Um, for coercing everybody, realizes that he's getting screwed over by the Donald, which I kind of feel like is that's happening now in real life. There's some people out there <laughs> who are Dash X. Some people and, that are starting to read the contract. Yeah, yeah, and realizing that they're not getting a cut of the pie. And they're not mad that he's, like, screwing over humanity. They're mad that they didn't get their piece of the pie. But at least <laughs> in this case, it works out to everyone's favor because Dash X is like, hey, check out this. I got your contract. So you want to look at him? And they get this, they basically find a tiny dot that they have to blow up huge so they can read what it right. says. Like with yeah, an electron microscope. Right. Yeah, they, they, they get this Terry Gilliam-esque device to, to so look at this good. fine print. <laughs> so good. And, and they, 
And they realize that everyone has sold their soul. Right. And well, before we get too far into that, I just want to get to when Dash wakes them up as they're still walking with their cool oh. with their two purchases is in the beginning of every single episode part of the like the intro theme song stuff when he's explaining why Erie Indiana is weird. One of the things he says every time is Elvis is on my paper route. <laughs> and it's like a, a, the same shot over and over again, him throwing, you know, a newspaper oh, yeah, and Elvis yeah. picks it up and says, thanks little paper boy. <laughs> and so like, then uh, the <laughs> Simon show. gets the Elvis lamp and he's like, oh, and I got a really cool lamp. But why would anyone make a lamp of the guy on your paper route? Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, Simon doesn't know who Elvis is. No, no. Like, as like a little kid wouldn't unless their parents were a fan, you know? Right. But it's, and so, and also in that scene, yeah, they get, they get, Knocked out of it because Dash Dash X enjoys slapping Marshall across the face. Sure. But so they figured out that they, you know, have these contracts and they discover that everyone is going to quote unquote the mall on a bus and it shows everybody getting loaded onto this bus with the reader on the on the top of the bus originally saying the mall and then it blips out and it says hell. <laughs> And then they, um, they're back in the, back in the store, they're talking to, to Mr. Radford and they're like, do something. And, and he's, you know, in his PJs getting ready for bed. Cause he's been up for 24 hours selling all of his stuff. And he's just like, I signed a contract guys. Nothing I can do. Well, then he also says, but Hey, I've made, I sold everything. I've made more money tonight. Than- yeah. Yeah. And and he seems fine with everything that's going on. And then um, the Donald shows up, grabs Simon and Dash X, and Marshall manages to escape out the door because he's going to try and force everybody onto the bus to hell, basically. Like, right. y'all sign a, a contract, you got to get on the bus. Well, Marshall gets away. And then someone comes in the door with a very fake-looking beard. Yeah, but, you know, the an older guy just has a bad fake beard on and he announces he's the tax man he announces that he's there to do the audit which they were expecting which is the bookend from the very beginning of the episode the whole reason everything started was the tax man and he says i'm gonna need to see your receipts and mr radford says i don't have the receipts and then everyone points at the donald he has the receipts and apparently Asking the devil, or I don't think the Donald works. I think the Donald works for the devil. It's not really implied that he is the devil because he's calling his boss on his phone sometimes. So he's supposed to be out there collecting souls and he has to relinquish his receipts, which are the have basically the receipt and the contract is the same thing. Like he does, that is the receipt. Like you sign this, this is proof that we did a transaction. So the IRS man gets the contracts and it makes the Donald have a meltdown. So I guess maybe he throws there's... a tinter, temper tantrum that drags him down back down to hell. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and I, I I'm skeptical, skeptical it's... about the IRS's ability to say, save us from anything at this point, yeah. but it's, it's kind of an entertaining <laughs> ending. And... Well, I don't know. Once the Donald has to show his tax records. Oh no. It's... Isn't that how they handled? What was it? Was it Mickey Cohen? Uh, no, Al Capone. Al Capone. I think. 
Anyway, um, and there was somebody, some gangster, or Scarface or something. I don't know. They, they, but the IRS. I mean, they got him on it's, tax evasion. It's a government agency, so we'll see. But anyway, the Donald melts down into the floor, like he dropped. The floor dis- dissolves, and he it's drops like, down to hell. Uh, the end of of uh, Rumpelstiltskin when yeah, he's so mad that they found out like his that. name that he stomps a hole into the ground and disappears within yeah. it. And so everybody's saved, and nobody has to take a bus to the mall that it <laughs> fell. Which, interestingly enough, years ago, I had a dream that I was in hell, and half of hell was a middle school. And you walked through the middle school, and it took you into a shopping mall. And it was just like, it was so visual. It were, there were lockers with, like, smoke and red lighting, and it was hot and, like, sweaty. And you had to go down these locker hallways, locker-lined hallways, and then it opened up into a shopping mall. And in the center of this shopping mall were these things that were shooting flames up from the floor. <laughs> and there was a demonic meet-and-greet Santa stand in the middle of it. And at the center... <laughs> was Jim Carrey dressed as Santa, and that was the devil in my dream. And I walk up to him, and I wake up when he asks me if I've been a good little girl this year. And then I woke up laughing so hard. If I ever, I doubt I'll ever meet Jim Carrey, but if I ever do, I'm telling him that story. Like, I had a dream you were the devil. You were dressed like a shopping mall Santa with demonic elves, and it was attached to a middle school because, you know, hell. <laughs> the twins from this show would back me up. Yeah. Anyways, uh, did we would we like to say anything more about zombies and PJs? I think I've said well, enough already, so you guys can take the floor. Yeah, we well we we haven't discussed the big reveal at the end after after the Donald melts down into hell, mm-hmm. um, oh, Mission yeah. Impossible style. The tax man turns around and reaches under his face and pulls <laughs> off what is a mask. And it turns out it's Marshall. Because he, he, bought, his, uh, he disguises even your mother wouldn't recognize yes. you. That's right. Even even uh, a demon from hell named the Donald wouldn't be able to recognize you. Yes. <laughs> and after after the mask comes off, it, it appears that the suit that the tax man was wearing doesn't fit quite as well as it as it maybe appeared at first. But you know, it's the art of disguise, right? It yeah, makes sense you know. that in the center of weirdness, a costume prop box would have magical properties. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. There's, there's an episode with a magical number two pencil. So, yeah. In Eerie, it makes <laughs> sense. But, yeah, I think that's that's about all there is to say about the um, zombies and PJs. We've we've said quite a lot tonight. It's I'm really happy because I love this show, and it's... As I said before, I feel like it still really holds up, and I was glad to get to share it with you guys. And yeah, then, it absolutely does. I mean, I also I, think. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little disappointed Val wasn't here for zombies and PJs. I, I feel she, like she, she would have, have she would have, have comments about this episode. <laughs> yeah. I almost want to like do a little recording with her post this possibly. We should I don't know. we should ask her we should ask her if she wants to like do a little supplemental little comment. <laughs> of course we're almost at two hours of recording now, so we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, and considering mostly our family is listening, <laughs> I'll be like, Oh god, here we go. The children are all on a soapbox tonight. But you know what? Yeah, I it's important. 
I, I agree, though. I think I think this show really holds up. Um, if anybody has seen the show on Disney, uh, Gravity Falls, Alex Hirsch has cited oh. this as a major influence. And it and it shows because this show is at its core, basically like a, a, a kid's detective story about just strange things happening in a strange town for apparently no reason. Right. And this show is, in a lot of ways, a nice homage to Kolchak. So if you are a Kolchak fan and you, you know, aren't put off by the idea that this was a kid's show originally, I recommend checking this out. And and Gravity yeah. Falls is an excellent animated series. We just finished it just recently, and that's something I think we need to have in our collection, too, because that, oh, that yeah. shows it's, it's like fantastic. this. Shows like this kind of get you in touch with how it feels to be a kid with all the like terror and wonder and hope. And, and it's just, it's so, I don't even know how to describe it, but I, I think, I think it's a little bit good for the heart, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you, if you grew up, if you grew up in, in the eighties or nineties, I think there's a lot to appreciate here, just like cultural references and just kind of the general feel but we all so many flannel shirts. <laughs> yeah, those are back around again too. So um, I think I think this is a strong recommend from from all of us. And yeah, if you're into shows, um, so if you like the show Eureka, I'd recommend this show. If you like, I also um, recommend Eureka. That's a good yeah, show. Yeah, if, if you like this show, I recommend Eureka. I guess I recommend all these shows, and they all have similar ties, which would be. Uh, Eureka, Gravity Falls, X Files, this show, uh, Erie, Indiana. Um, there was a few more we had talked. There's about. one that I Kolchak. haven't actually seen. Yeah. There's one Kolchak. that I haven't seen, but it's a Disney show that Val mentioned for possible a future episode called So Weird. Which, from what little I looked into, it looks like it's kind of got a similar a similar theme to this too. Sure. So, so we'll, we'll check of that out. Oh yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Pete and Pete is, is definitely in this in this kind of realm. And and I think um, we probably won't – I'm not anticipating that we'll do another episode of this in, or, in, on Erie, Indiana, unless there's a episode that ties into a theme where it's combined with episodes of other shows. But I think we've pretty much covered the gamut of this show and said most of what we wanted to say about it. And there are only 19 episodes. There, Some of them aren't as good as others, but they're all – entertaining and watchable and the ones that are good are really good so i yeah definitely check this out apparently there's a reboot out there that's like they yeah, there's, did. Episodes. there's something called well, they... the uh, the like it's like the other dimension Erie, indiana the other yeah. dimension I'm, i've heard it's not good I don't yeah, know, I the um basically after the show got canceled it ran on syndication for a couple years afterwards and it got very popular. I think it was on the Disney Channel. It got very popular while it was running in syndication. So mm-hmm. they decided they'd try and capitalize on that and make the spinoff series. And I, I also haven't seen it, but it uh, was also canceled after one season. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it, one season cancellation is not an indication of the quality of the show. I haven't watched it, so I can't really speak to that. But there's so many... So many good shows that just ran for one season, you know, like this and Freaks and Geeks, um, Wonderful mm-hmm. comes to mind. That's something we, we yeah, watched. That's recently. another one you can totally watch. That's similar. That's to this similar Wonderfalls. to this, actually. Yeah, Wonderfalls is not a kids show, but it's got that quirk and kind of like really colorful, kind of hyper real little town vibe where everybody knows everybody. Song. Yeah. 
so uh, without, unless anybody has any final thoughts, I feel like we could wrap this up. Yep, I think that does it for now. Great. Well, I will, let's see, I will put a note, or I will put a link on our homepage, which is thehaunteddavenport.com, which is where we post photos for all of our shows and relevant links and like a little description of each episode. So if you want to check out extra details about our episodes, that's a good place to go. You can also listen directly from that website if you don't have a streaming app of choice, but um, we're available also through Podbean or Apple Podcasts if you aren't already listening through one of those. Thank you very much for listening and thank you for listening through this rant that I had tonight it's been there's been a lot of emotions going on i'm sure a lot of you are there as well and even if you don't agree with me we appreciate you listening to the show so hope y'all are well stay safe and join us next time i think drew and i will be coming at you real soon with a dark shadows bonus episode so look forward to that and also we will be continuing on with our 90s nostalgia in July. I'm afraid to say what we're covering because every time we've tried to do this episode, something's happened. So I just want to knock on some wood. Basically our Macbeth at this point. (laughs) Well, we got this episode out and we've been wanting to do this one for a long time too. So hopefully we're on a roll. But tune in for some more 90s summer nostalgia uh, in July. And yeah, take care of yourselves, guys. With a number eight platter at the restaurant 429 for almost anything I want Had it up, it's cheaper than the stuff I make myself I get by, I never needed anybody's help And I tore out an ad and they told me that I Would press the buzzer, would press the buzzer At the graduate lab, they were doing some tests I pressed the buzzer, would press the buzzer Ride the circle of the it through the daily drill paint the nails walk a dog pay every bill i'm feeling sorry for this guy that i pressed to the shock he guessed the answer's wrong i have to up the watts and he paid me to stop but they told me to go i press the buzzer i press the buzzer so get out of my head just give me my line i press the buzzer i press the buzzer To discuss the test I put my earrings on Found my heels wore a dress Right away I knew It was like I failed a quiz The man said Do you know what a fascist is? I said yes when you do